the second one of the four supreme emotions is compassion its far enemy is cruelty which is easy to see and its near enemy is again so similar that it's not that easy to distinguish from it it's pity pity is a feeling of otherness it's feeling that one is sorry for someone else and being sorry for someone else one distinguishes that from oneself with pity it can sometimes even go so far that well we're very sorry for the other person quite glad it isn't us that this is happening to it is not a feeling of being together but rather that there's one person who's having a bad time pity can also have the mistaken reaction of not only being sorry for the other person but also starting to suffer to feel so sorry that that sorrow then is one's own feeling instead of having one sufferer we get two which doesn't help either one of them Dukkha doesn't go away when we suffer from it. On the contrary, we reinforce it. Compassion is something entirely different, but because it has also the other person in the heart, we can easily mistake it. That pity is the same. Compassion as the word itself implies is a with feeling com is with and passion feeling so it's empathy and it has to be based on insight it doesn't come by itself we can have pity because we recognize the suffering of another and suffer along but compassion doesn't just arise it's based on a very good understanding of one's own dukkha if we haven't understood our own dukkha and have at least accepted it to the point where we realize that suffering under it isn't going to do anything we won't have compassion either usually dukkha is treated by people in several totally wrong ways which neither minimize nor eliminate it and do not bring insight at all 
the first thing that is very popular is when we have dukkha is to blame someone for it now it may not be it often is the person that is physically nearest it's most convenient and most often the continuous trigger and it's a convenient thing to do but it doesn't have to be the person nearest because we may already be wise enough to know that that isn't going to get us anywhere it's only going to aggravate the situation so we think of other scapegoats those that we know and those that we don't know anything will do if we feel that it has a detrimental effect on our emotions now that detrimental effect on our emotions is exactly the jack in the box effect that's all it is and we've got to remember that if we remember the jack in the box we'll never ever again blame another there just isn't anyone there to blame it's all happening within us and as it happens within us it's strictly due to the reaction that comes about because that reaction exists within us nothing else the story of the jackanapa So blaming another is a very popular enterprise it's totally useless because it doesn't do anything about the dukkha it just reinforces it in fact it can become so ingrained in us that we're always looking for a scapegoat for anything that happens and as it becomes so ingrained it may become our conversation topic which is not unusual and some people choose one particular thing that they talk about because that is the one that aggravates them that's an extreme but without that extreme we also go to the not so extreme stand of finding something that has caused our dukkha another very popular way of dealing with dukkha is to try to get away from it to remove oneself from it now that is the most common way of dealing with it and one of the examples is something that you're experiencing if you're not used to this sitting position you're not used to the sitting position and you get an unpleasant sensation you want to get away from it by moving that's exactly the same thing we do day after day every day of our lives whether the dukkha is physical or emotional at this point in time i'm talking about the emotional one we try to get away from it and as we try to get away from it we have devised 
innumerable ways and means of doing it quickly. We're living in an instant society, so it's got to go quickly. We need to be able to get away by pressing a button. So we've got lots of buttons in the house which we can press. Some of them are on telephones and some of them are on television uh, uh, viewers. Some of them are on video viewers. Some of them are on other machines. Wherever we can press a button, that will take our mind off the dukkha, distraction. That's a very convenient way of doing it. It doesn't do anything for us. It dulls the mind, but it appears to be a way out. It's uh, the escape route, which is always a dead-end street, but it's being used. We have, of course, other far worse escape routes, which nobody in their right mind should be using, such as drugs and alcohol, but, and they're possibly not quite as common, uh, common as pressing buttons, but they're the same thing, trying to get away distraction. Another way of trying to get away is moving oneself physically away. Traveling. Going from one place to another. Moving about. Traveling is connected with a lot of destruction. In fact, it has so much destruction that sometimes one can't even cope with it. But it certainly, the dukkha that arises out of that is quickly forgotten because something else happens. So that's another way, another escape route. We have other ways of dealing with it. Namely, trying to change the outer condition. Now that's also very popular. First on the list might be getting another partner or another job or another house or moving from the city to the country or back from the country to the city or we might uh, change our uh, spiritual practice or the teacher, or we might change our diet, or we might uh, learn something new. All of them are escape routes, every single one of them. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that learning something new is bad. On the contrary, it can be very useful. But unless we deal with our dukkha, in an intelligent and insightful way, none of these possibilities have a chance of giving us happiness. Every single one of them is a dead-end street. There's no way to get out. Dukkha, as the Buddha said, at his enlightenment, as the first noble truth, Dukkha is. And the sooner we get that through our heads, the better off we are. It just is. And why is it? Because even the most wonderful thing that happens is impermanent. 
it can't stick around. Nothing remains. Least of all ourselves. We don't remain either. So Dukkha is not just pain, grief and lamentation, sorrow or any of the other tragedies that people know about. It is the first fact of existence. It is all that exists. None of it can be totally satisfied. As long as we try to find our satisfaction and fulfillment in those things which are physically, materially or emotionally available to us in the world, we're going to be constantly disappointed. Trying to blame another or even blame ourselves, trying to run away from it or to change the outside condition has been tried and tried again without any success. We can momentarily forget about Dukkha because we're so busy with other things. And that's another possibility we have. Not just distraction or flight, but being busy. Being so busy that we haven't got time for anything. It's a wonderful ego support, being terribly busy. Because obviously we're important, otherwise we wouldn't be so busy. It is against all spiritual practice. So, Dukkha has a very important function in our lives, which should never be overlooked or underrated. Dukkha is our teacher. Now, I've said that before, but human memory being what it is, the Buddha repeated himself innumerable times. In those days, nothing was written down. No, nothing is a better teacher. Dukkha is what brings us to meditation. Now, it may not be a tragedy. It's just dissatisfaction. That feeling inside which is sort of like a little quirk inside which says there ought to be something else. There ought to be more. And because people do have that feeling, especially when they have everything materially already available, anything goes. The promises of finding fulfillment in this way or that way are innumerable. I don't know about in England, but there's a newspaper, a uh, magazine in Germany. I saw it for the first time about a week ago. It's called Esoterra, which tells already what it's about. And uh, it's at half about 180 pages and every page gives some information 
about something that's supposed to make you completely happy. And everything is different. And it starts with some quite sensible sounding things. And it has things in it which sound so absurd that one wonders that anybody could even fall for it. But I'm sure they do. Anything to get out of Dukkha. But they, one can't get out. Dukkha is. The Buddha's teaching has the solution for it. But it isn't just done by the snap of a finger. It's work. It's purification. It's meditation, not once in a while, but every day. And it's constant and repeated remembrance of what one is on about. The solution that the Buddha has found, and which is the only one to get out of dukkha permanently, is to give up the person who's having the dukkha, which does not mean suicide. It just means giving up the illusion when there's nobody here, there's nobody that can have dukkha. But to get rid of dukkha some other way is a myth. In fact, it is, one could say, a misrepresentation, which might be, and usually is done, without recognizing what, what one is doing. Dukkha exists everywhere. Everybody has had it. Most people are having it. And if they're not having it, they're going to have it. Because we cannot be totally satisfied with what the world offers. And why is that? because what the world offers is only available to us through our senses. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and, as a last resort, thinking. Lots of thinkers in the world. Busy thinking. Our libraries all over the world are full to the ceiling with what people have thought about. Nobody ever became totally fulfilled from that. The senses that take in what the world has to offer cannot recognize anything. It's always the mind. The ear hears sound, but it doesn't know that it's a cough. It's only the mind that knows that. And the eye sees color and shape. And it doesn't know that it's a pretty girl. The mind says that. And somebody who doesn't have any interest in pretty girls might just think, ah, female. It's a thought that represents 
the sense contact. And since the sense contact, even the most wonderful sense contact, is very short, it cannot be long-lasting. We can't handle that. There's no fulfillment to be found in the world. We can't approach the world through anything else except through our senses, which includes the thinking. And all the sense contacts produce feeling. Some of it pleasant, some of it unpleasant, some of it neutral. Now we'll talk about that again in more detail. But at this point in time, I'm only referring to the fact that as long as we're trying to find satisfaction in the world, through the worldly conditions, we'll constantly be disappointed. And the disappointment may lead us in many directions. It may lead to dislike of the world and its people, thinking that one is getting shortchanged, that one is not getting one's due. It happens to lots of people. Other people may try to find some way out through affirming the beautiful. Well, it's certainly better than becoming bitter about it. It's preferable. If we affirm the beautiful, at least we're easy to live with. So that's a great advantage. It doesn't help us with our insight. It doesn't try, it doesn't help us to get out of Dukkha, but it certainly helps us to not be drowned by it. The Buddha said that the human realm is the best one to become enlightened in because we have enough Dukkha to want to do something about it. But we also have enough Sukha, which is the opposite pleasure, not to be completely swamped by our dukkha. So we have the greatest opportunity to look at anything that happens in our lives which we consider as dukkha, as the greatest learning opportunity that we've ever had. And therefore, be grateful for it. That's the only proper approach to dukkha. All other approaches are self-defeating. We have another way which we use dukkha in a wrong view, and that's becoming sorry for ourselves. Why does this always happen to me? That type of thing. Or that it is very unfair because one always wanted the best and it turned out the worst. Becoming sorry for oneself can lead to depression. Once one has allowed that to happen, one's got quite a long way up again. The only proper response is knowing the Buddha's first and second noble truths, which were his words at enlightenment. He proclaimed what are called the Four Noble Truths. And the first one I've already said, the Noble Truths of Dukkha. 
two places. And the second one, that there's only one single cause for it. That, that makes it nice and easy, doesn't it? And that single cause for dukkha is wanting, craving, which includes wanting to get rid of. Now this is something that we can, each one, prove immediately whether it's true or not. And having done so, we've got a foot in the door of practice. Namely, if there's anything that's bothering us, anything at all, small, medium, large, doesn't matter, let's say a pain in the knee or wanting the food or having a situation in one's life which isn't satisfactory and this is a niggling feeling within comes and disturbs meditation makes us not feel completely at ease for one moment, drop the idea that it could be different. Just drop the whole thing. One second only. You can pick it up again the next second and have just as much dukkha as before. But just drop it for one moment only. The wanting to change it. A pain in the knee. If you don't want it, it's dukkha. If you don't pay any attention to the wanting or to the not wanting, it's only an unpleasant sensation, which makes a lot of difference. The world is full of unpleasant sensations. There are easily as many as pleasant ones. And if one has a 50-50 effect in one's life, one can be very happy and grateful for it. Just dropping for one moment the wanting to get rid of whatever it is that we have that we don't like or wanting to get what we don't have and would like to have. And by that one moment we prove the Buddha's enlightenment statement correct. And not only have we proven the Buddha correct, which may not be so our intention, we know what to do from then on. If we want to get rid of dukkha, all we have to do is drop the wanting. Things are the way they are, that's it. As long as there's wanting, there's dukkha. The wanting itself is the dukkha. Because the wanting is the tension of stretching out for it, reaching out for it, not knowing whether it's going to happen and not knowing whether one can get, keep it. It's so easy to see what we can do to get rid of dukkha. And yet, most people never do it. Why? As strange as it may seem, 
Many people like their dukkha. Makes them feel alive. It's mine. It's an ego support. Look at my problem. There are many times when people start their conversation with, well, my problem is, it's mine. Mine alone, so it supports whoever I think I am. And although that those people probably don't know that they're hanging on to dukkha for dear life, that's what they're doing. It's become a habit, and it means me. Those people are not easy to live with, because that's all they talk about, their dukkha. And when you have a lot of that in your mind, you see everything else in that light too. That's why I said it's much better than in that case to have those that are affirming the beautiful. At least it's easy to get along with them. Although they don't see reality, at least they're making life a little more pleasant for themselves. When a person puts on these rose-colored glasses, and then one of the things happen which are bound to happen which are decay and death and loss that affirmation hasn't helped that's why the Buddha's way is to see the reality to see the way it really is one of his sentences is a knowledge and vision of things as they really are which is the first step where our insight starts to become transcendental. Up to then, we have to work to try and see things as they are. When we do, knowledge and vision means that we understand that what we can feel, the understood experience. The vision is not a picture, it's the inner experience. If we are able through practice to look our dukkha in the face and say thank you you have come very nice of you what are you trying to teach me this time and then find out what it is we're supposed to learn and actually learn it then we have a handle on compassion only then everything else is only a myth. We think we can feel with another. But when we see and understand completely our own dukkha and accept it and find the way out, namely by dropping our ideas how the world should be and how our life should be, and how other people should be, and how we should be, and how everything should be run. When we drop all that and just look it straight in the face and see how it is with us within, and know that the dropping of the wanting is the only way out of dukkha, that's when compassion is really arising, because we know that the person who's suffering hasn't seen that yet 
otherwise they wouldn't be suffering. And since we ourselves have also suffered from that in the past, haven't seen the way out, thought that something is wrong because things aren't the way we want them, and we know what it feels like to have suffered like that, but have got past that, then we can also help. Compassion has to be based on insight into Dukkha. Dukkha is one of the three characteristics of the universe. I already mentioned that there are three and that I have given the suggestion to look at impermanence, which is the first of the three. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Dukkha is the second one. And the universe is the same as us. So once we get inside of ourselves and can see that, what's going on within and how we create our own dukkha, we can also see how everybody else does it. We are creators. We are mental creators. And we can create for ourselves any kind of world. But that doesn't mean that it is advisable to create a dream world because that dream world collapses the minute it gets in touch with reality. Reality is stronger than the dream and it collapses. But we can create a world within where our reactions no longer produce dukkha. When we have seen how to do that, when we have seen that it's nothing but letting go, that's all it is. It's not trying to get, it's letting go. Then we realize it's also connected to another, because the one who wants is me, and the one who lets go can be the one who wants to minimize the me having. It doesn't mean that we sacrifice ourselves. We don't become sacrificial victims of anything. We just realize that we are producing our own dukkha by wanting more. And we also know that there's no escape from it until we have given up the personal identification with mind and body where there's always the wish to have. Now that may not come as quickly as I have just said it, but at least some of these insights can and must arise for any meditator. A meditation practice which does not produce insight is done in vain. There is no such thing as just calm because the calm is the means to produce the insight and again only insight is also not useful because the insights as they become more profound go against everything that we've ever stood for or worked for so we have to have the substitution of calm I will explain both aspects, calm and insight, in more detail as we go along 
I will be explaining them with um, a little more in depth. But the purification aspect, that is the underlying foundation for a spiritual life, is so to say the necessary entrance into everything. The Buddhist teaching is divided into three parts. Sila, Samadhi and Panya. Sila means virtue and that means purification. And Samadhi is concentration and Panya is wisdom insight. And they're always mentioned in that order and most of the time taught in that order but not always. They can come in any order. We can have some wisdom first, inside, and then realize that purification is necessary. And then realize concentration is possible. Any order will do, as long as all three are practiced. If we don't practice all three, we don't have a complete practice. And somewhere along the line we will notice something is missing. When they have been meditating for years on end and yet they are still fear. Or when they have been meditating for a long time and yet the any anything that happens which isn't to one's liking creates a disturbance. So something bec- uh, is missing and we become aware of that. All three have to be practiced. And the sila part, the virtue part, is very often only described as adhering to precepts. And I will explain all the precepts also. But it's far more than that. It's a purification of mind and heart. And the purification of mind concerns substitution of unwholesome thinking with wholesome thinking and the purification of the heart concerns the substitution of our unwholesome emotions with wholesome ones. I will mention and describe our unwholesome emotions in equal detail, but the wholesome ones are of the greatest importance because by them alone we can already tell that the others which do not fall into those categories cannot possibly do the work for us. So the compassion which we can have with others suffering based on insight into our own suffering will be our feeling of interconnectedness. The more we have that feeling of non-separation the more we can realize that only those emotions are the proper relationship with other people, anyone at all. And especially if we should get angry about anyone, compassion is our response, not anger. Why should we be angry at another person who has equally as much dukkha as we have? Why should we be angry 
at someone who identifies with mind and body and therefore has all sorts of problems. Why should we be angry at someone who may have been father or mother in a past life? And why should we get angry and make bad karma? The only thing to do is to have compassion. If that becomes an understood inner reality, we can practice it. Because one of the things which is also necessary on the spiritual path is a vision of what we're trying to do. Now with the word vision, it's not necessarily meant that we see a picture. Some people do see words and pictures. And it can be helpful, but it's not necessary. A vision of what we're trying to do. How do we want to really live our lives? If we study something, learn something, some trade or study something, profession, we have a vision. Why are we doing this? What do I want to do with this study once I'm finished with it? How do I want to use it? Why am I doing it? Is it important? Can I give myself to it? And with that vision, we have a long-range idea where we're going. A spiritual path is not a hit-or-miss affair, and certainly not potluck. If we mean it seriously, we've got to have an equally exact vision of where do we want to go with this? What do we want to do? How do we want to make it come true? What is the most important thing for us to do at this time? The Buddha's teaching has only one goal, one only. Everything else leads to that. How far we get with it is a second question. It has the goal of Nibbana. Nibbana means non-burning. But it means freedom, liberation, absolute truth. It means a total understanding. Absolute reality looked quite different from relative reality in which we live. It does not have the idea of a little bit of meditation. That's not part of the plan. So it's very important that one has a vision of what one wants to do and what is most important in one's life and how that should be accomplished, what is most important. Once having had that vision and having it quite clear in one's mind, one can drop the whole thing and just get on with it. If we have the idea that we would like to climb a high mountain because we have heard that the view from the top is absolutely astounding, the air is completely unpolluted and everybody on top there is very happy and we actually start climbing that mountain, it's not useful to keep one's eye 
on the summit. Usually the summit is shrouded in fog anyway. And besides, if we keep our eye on the summit, we don't know where we're going. And we haven't got the ability to understand whether we are stepping on a safe place or whether we are in danger of falling into a crevice. only done because we've had a vision what it eventually will provide for us. So here we have the opportunity and if we use the guidelines for purification we are taking the first steps up that mountain. Everything looks different if we have feelings of love and compassion for everyone around us. That totally different feeling within. As if we get bothered by other people's words, looks and actions. When they bother us, we can immediately recognize that we have forgotten about compassion. The more we remember it, the easier our own life is. The ease which arises within helps us to meditate. That's why it's important to start every meditation session that you do with a feeling of love or compassion for yourself. It eases the way. It's like the oil in the machine. It oils all the creaking parts. And human beings have lots of creaking parts. That's enough on this subject. If you have any questions, this is the time to ask them. You wouldn't change the outside world, you'd change your inside. So whatever path you're on, whatever is happening to you, it is teaching and therefore it's perfect. No matter how ugly it looks, huh? <laughs> yes, but you see there's a, there's a catch to that, like to everything else. That's the way it is, but we're not necessarily at that point where we can handle that. So what happens is this, that everything that happens to us, as you quite rightly say, is our teacher and therefore it's perfect. However, as a teacher it's perfect. However, we may come 
to a situation where we have one negative thought and emotion after another. And even though we know quite well intellectually that's not the way it's done, we should have love and compassion and patience and endurance and all the other good qualities, we're incapable of doing it, totally and utterly incapable. And the negativities become more and more and pile up on us. It may be the moment where we have to admit that we are not able to handle that particular situation and have to remove ourselves from it without ever blaming anyone else, just admitting defeat, that's all. Okay? We've all been defeated hundreds and thousands of times in this life. Every time we got angry, every time we got upset, every time we got impatient, we've been defeated. So, we didn't look at it that way that time. But now we can. So this one, this situation is beyond me, so I'm defeated. All right? I'll work on it so that maybe in the future I can handle it. Does simplifying your life is, is a defeat? No. Simplifying your, your life is, is excellent. But running away from a situation which is creating negativity in the mind because we can't substitute the positive, that's a defeat. Simplifying life is, is excellent. The more the better. Until there's only four things left. Food, clothes, roof over one's head, and medicine when sick. That's what the Buddha called the necessary ingredients for life. The requisite. And as little as possible of each. <laughs> <laughs> From life, yeah. well, it, it's running away from the economy, from the con consumerism. Consumerism is not necessarily spiritual. Consumerism is uh, a very good way to uh, bolster the economy, and uh, it's being done with a vengeance, and it's the only way. Hmm? Yeah, but not consumerism is. Greed is. You've got to look at it and see what it is. Consumerism isn't, is your teacher and you see the greed behind it. But if you think that's it, that's fine, well, <laughs> then you're part of it. And it's very easy to be uh, tempted into being part of it. I went with a um, uh, Sri Lankan monk in Hamburg through a, a shopping um, mall in a very elegant area, beautiful shops. And he looked at the shop windows and then he turned around to me and he said, isn't it wonderful how many things there are that I don't need? <laughs> <laughs> and it was quite wonderful really because those shops were just fantastic. <laughs> the latest things and everything. <laughs> yes, uh, so, yes. Just to be a young person who is in the shop in which they are, which 
But it depends why they're unhappy. Well, it depends entirely why. It depends entirely what it is. See, if they're unhappy because they can't get along with their fellow workers, well, they've got to work on it. Start loving them. But if they're unhappy because what the the pro, uh, production or whatever it is that this job does, who knows, is something that is not uh, virtuous, well, get out. It depends entirely the reason for it. If the, if the job is con- concerned with lying, for instance, well, quite a number of jobs are, like advertising agencies, for instance, well, one should get out. But it depends what it is. One has to be, know exactly. And it takes a fair bit of what the Buddha calls wise consideration. And wise consideration is up to each person. And wise consideration is always more difficult if we have many wishes. When it's very objective and we don't have many wishes, wise consideration is much easier. easier. So it depends what, what's going on in our lives. Anything else? Another one? Hmm? Not me. No? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you were looking at me. <laughs> Well, I think most people do realize that their lives are unsatisfactory, but I think you're right in saying that they don't know another way of making it more satisfactory. I, I, I think that most people know it and try to make it more satisfactory through all the different things that we have available in the world and then only come to the conclusion that that's not it either when they have tried it for a long time. Uh, some people come to the conclusion even early on, but most have to try for a long time. But uh, it's not necessary to remove yourself from the world in order to practice a spiritual life. One of the descriptions of an arahant, of a fully enlightened one, is Although touched by worldly circumstance, never his mind is wavering. This is part of the Mahamangala Sutta, that's one of the very famous discourses uh, where the Buddha gives uh, instructions, what are the great blessings. And um, an arahant is touched by worldly circumstance, but the mind isn't wavering. But in order to get to that point, it is quite useful to retreat from the world sometimes for a while in order to have space and time for oneself. But the world is always with us. As long as we haven't bought a body, we've got to go and get something to eat. 
that's in the world. So it's not uh, the getting away from the world, it's getting away from what the world thinks and directs itself to, what's important. We can see it differently. The um, spiritual path is about 180 degrees turned around from the worldly path. But the person who does it looks just the same and eats and sleeps and goes to the toilet and has a shower and all the rest of it. But it's within. Hmm? Well, it it was said when we talked about that that usually you do attract the kind of people that um, you yourself are. So tell me who are your friends and I'll tell you who you are. So it's um, it's usually a, a matter of leveling out. It's like water that levels out. So when one is really concerned with certain things, one finds the people who are also concerned with that. You know, like stamp collectors, they get together. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, there are four foundations of mindfulness. I've only explained two so far. The two I've explained is the bodily action and the bodily movement. And the other one is the content of thought. But there are two more, and I will talk about them. One is the feelings, which is either sensation or emotion. And the other one is, so to say, the mood, the mind state, the mood. And from a practical standpoint, one uses that as one's mindfulness focus, which is most important and prominent at the time. So, if you're washing dishes, you don't have to consider your mind state. Just wash dishes. That's all. Washing dishes while washing dishes. If one is vacuuming a floor, vacuum the floor. That's all. Finished. Nothing else. You write a letter, writing a letter. That's it. Nothing else. But if emotions come up and disturb all this, whatever you're doing there, and can't be attended to it, then you pay attention to the emotion or to the mind state or to the content of the mind. The first order of the day is to be concerned only with what is happening. But if it's being disturbed at that what is happening may be something that you have to think about. But that wouldn't be a mind state, it's just your attention. But if that's being disturbed, then you have to pay attention to that what is disturbing it. So you don't run after every thought, this is what you were sort of referring to and try to figure out what have I thought now and what have I done now. You pay attention, you be totally mindful to what you're actually doing. Actually doing. But when you start <coughs> reacting, then you're mindful to the re- of the reaction.
and then you look and see whether it's wholesome. We do lots of things every day, and one becomes a hundred percent more efficient, uh, far less stressed, and uh, much quicker, and without much disturbance if we're mindful of what we're actually doing. One of the formulas is not so much thinking, more doing. There's nothing to think about. There are so many things we have to do, we don't have to think about them. And the more we think about them, the more we can get into um, byways of thinking which lead us astray. But if we have, you know, if we are being disturbed by either emotion or thought, naturally we'll have to pay attention to that and see what it is. Anything else? When you say supertease, what do you mean by that more? Just investigating and try to form a conclusion so it can be put aside again? That would be a little bit um, too um, uh, lengthy process. If you see what it is, if it's an unwholesome emotion, substitute it with a wholesome one as quickly as you can. If you see it's an unwholesome thought, substitute it with a wholesome one as quickly as you can. If you can't, yes, then you must investigate. If you can't substitute quickly, then you must start thinking, why am I thinking that? What is this all That's about? Yeah, we might not have to get that far. You might understand already way up on the top that it's all useless. Mm-hmm. You know? But if you can't, then you have to go all the way down there, yes. But don't try shortcuts. It's because if you say, oh yes, I remember she said it was on the bottom line is ego. Okay, finished. Uh, it doesn't work. <coughs> it doesn't work. You've got to see it yourself. You know? If you could see it, then it really would be an achievement, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's very good because it uh, makes an impact. Only what you do yourself makes an impact. The rest is just roadmap. That's all. Drawing of the roadmap. In fact, there are quite a number of uh, teaching aids in the Buddhist tradition which are sort of like roadmaps. And they are drawn to show one of them is depend origination, the wheel of life and death. It's a teaching aid. You may have seen it. It's a round circle with a demon on top. And uh, it, is, it explains depend origination in a drawn, uh, as a drawing. So we do have roadmaps. But that's all this is, a roadmap. Anything else? Yes. Good to be compassionate, and it's good never to use harsh words. Can it ever be compassionate to use harsh words? Yes, the Buddha calls his monks and nuns fools quite often, and uh, he didn't so much say that to lay people. He more said it to monks and nuns because they were supposed to act more you know, wisely. Um, harsh words to the point where there's a teaching in, uh, included and which were not abusive not in abusive terms abusive is not conducive to teaching 
but a harshness um, is sometimes possibly possibly necessary because the people are maybe yeah they don't they don't listen or they don't uh, uh, understand and sometimes it will wake them up that has often happened but not abusive but certainly strong the Buddhist uh, strongest uh, term was fool and in Pali that's the same word as child so but at least one can tell the difference in the context of the sentence Bala is fool and also child well that's what the strongest term And please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Fill your heart with compassion for yourself, recognizing the difficulties that you have encountered in this life, recognizing that you've tried to make the best of them, and feel the warmth and embrace of compassion the understanding and empathy that compassion entails. Fill yourself with that warmth, surround yourself with the embrace of compassion, knowing full well that difficulties are always there. And that you've tried your very best. And now direct your thoughts and feelings towards the person nearest you, recognizing that he or she has the same difficulties. And fill him or her with the warmth of compassion, the understanding, the with-feeling, the connection,
And now fill everyone here with your compassion, knowing full well that we're all alike. All wanting happiness, all encountering difficulties. Feel that togetherness and give each one the warmth and embrace of your empathy, your understanding. You wish to help and to share. Think of your parents and fill them with your compassion, embrace them with it, recognizing all the difficult things they have encountered in their lives, wishing to help, understanding and sympathizing. of those people who are nearest and dearest to you, whom you might know best. Recognize their dukkha and feel compassion. Fill them with it, surround them with it. Let them know that you have that feeling for them. Think of all your good friends. Fill them with your compassion. 
all the difficulties that they've ever had and are maybe having now. Letting them feel that you are with them. of those people whom you meet in your daily lives, neighbors, colleagues at work, people on the street, in the shops, wherever you see people, recognize that each one has dukkha and feel with them. wanting to help and to share what you have already found about your way out of Dukkha. Recognizing the togetherness. Think of anyone with whom you might have difficulties or whom you dislike or towards whom you feel quite indifferent and recognize that that person has also the same dukkha as all of us. Feel him or her with your compassion, the warmth, the care, the understanding, the empathy, the togetherness. Now think of all the people that you have seen or met in your life that you see now or have seen in the past that you know about and recognize the fact that everyone has dukkha. 
fill each person that you can possibly think of with your compassion, with your understanding, with your feeling of togetherness, of care and concern. With your wish to help, Put your attention back on yourself and feel the joy and contentment which comes from giving and caring. And fill yourself with that joy and that contentment and surround yourself with those feelings. Feeling at ease and protected. May all beings have compassion for each other. 